it's November 1982. This is the Player Muscle Podcast, and I'm Rob, your host. Starting with this year, episode 28, I'm going to try an experiment. I'm going to split the magazine coverage into multiple episodes. So this episode is going to contain analog compute and creative computing, and the next episode will contain the remaining magazines from November of 1982. And then a third episode will be the game review and technical discussion I was going to have about the 5200 and the hardware differences between the 8-bits and the 5200 systems. And as an example of that, I was going to compare the 8-bit version of Kix to the 5200 version of Kix. Now, the purpose of this experiment is twofold. One is to reduce the length of each individual episode. These past three episodes have been at least two hours long, and that is a negative for some people. And two, hopefully it'll be easier for me to edit stuff and produce episodes on a more regular basis, because I won't have this huge daunting task of editing, you know, many hours of audio at the same time. You know, this is not really coming from anywhere. There's been no negative feedback really on long episodes, and I personally don't mind long episodes. But I do understand that there is some hesitancy on people to download a long episode thinking they won't have enough time to listen to it. So even though the content is not going to change in my podcast, by splitting it up, maybe it'll be a win-win for everybody. You know, who knows? This is an experiment. We'll try it. I sort of resisted doing it for a long time just because, you know, that's the way I'd always done the podcast. But a downside is I don't really know how popular the magazine coverage is versus the game reviews. So this will be a data point. You know, I'll be able to see if magazine episodes get more downloads than the, you know, the technical episodes. So with that, I think we'll plan at least for the next couple months doing this format, where each month then will be broken down into the three episodes. The first episode containing my four favorite magazines, or whichever of those exist in the month. So that'd be Analog, Antic, Compute, and Creative Computing. The next episode for the rest of the magazines, which will be some subset of everything else, like Byte, Computers and Video Games, CGW, Softline, Softside, you know, all those magazines. For this episode, we have three magazines, Analog, Compute, and Creative Computing. First one is Analog. It's Analog Computing, the magazine for Atari computer owners. It's issue number eight, two bucks fifty on the cover price, and 100 pages in the issue. It's a blue background on the cover. The Analog Computing is like, and it's kind of a font that sort of acts like a circuit board, and it's got a black board around it. It's a blue background for the magazine. And then the main image is an Atari 800, kind of at an angle, with a hand over it and sort of electricity zapping out of the hand onto the computer. And on the image of the monitor behind it is kind of some bar graphs. It says, Budget Programs Review, and then CTIA and GTIA Graphics, Budget Worksheet 2, Color Slot Machine, Graphic Violence, which is an assembly language routine that I will definitely talk about, Beginner's Basic, and Stuntman, which I think is the game. Turning to the table of contents, they have the masthead right there as well, where they list all the contributors and stuff, and I noticed that there's no Mark Benioff this issue. So I wonder if we've seen the last of his Benioff at Large column. You know, this being analog, I'll go through the whole magazine, but some of the things that appear in the table of contents that I'm interested in are, in addition to the stuff that was on the front cover, they have a Dungeons & Dragons character generator and an Atari symbol demo. On the facing page is an ad for Compute's second book of Atari, and it has some interesting stuff. It says, after only three years on the market, the Atari 400-800 microcomputers have become among the most popular person computers ever made. So it's no surprise when Compute's first book of Atari, a collection of the best Atari articles published during 1980 to 1981 in Compute Magazine, also became a bestseller with Atari enthusiasts. The first printing sold out in just a few months. That's why we followed up with Compute's second book of Atari. And then it follows that the second book is different from the first book in that all the articles are totally new and previously unpublished. The second book of Atari includes such interesting articles as page flipping, fun with scrolling, perfect pitch, player missile drawing editor, and text plot makes a game. Whole chapters are devoted to subjects such as advanced graphics and game utilities, programming techniques, and beyond basic. 
With 250 pages more than 25% thicker than the first book at the same price, the second book of Atari is crammed with information and ready-to-use program listings. Says it's available now for $12.95. And it lists the table of contents of all the stuff that it contains. The biggest section seems to be the Advanced Graphics and Games Utilities chapter, where it's got that player missile drawing editor, and page flipping, introduction to display list interrupts, has extending Atari high-resolution graphics with a polygon fill subroutine. And so this is one of the books I haven't... I don't know, maybe I should do a book review sometime. Hmm. Maybe for a bonus episode I could do something like that. All right, well, let's continue on with the magazine here. There's an editorial by John Bell talking about the computer whiz kids of today. And so he mentions that he's run into a bunch of kids who are half his age, who know more about programming and computers than he does. But then says what he saw that wasn't great is that he's met some kids who have no interest in anything but computers. And says he's read program submissions from kids who chronically misspell words, kids who have nice programs but can't write documentation, kids who aren't in school, don't have any hobbies or anything else except playing computer games. He says, by sacrificing everything at the altar of the computer, these kids are becoming illiterate. He sort of admonishes that kids aren't reading enough, and reading is an interactive learning experience that stimulates the imagination and fosters real learning. He says, kids who don't read anything other than program documentation or the instructions, including with a video game, scare me. He says, other than the temporary enjoyment of playing a video game, what benefits does that provide? He said he got into a Discussion with uh, Lee Pappas, one of the publishers, saying that video games increases hand-eye coordination and teaches somebody to be a good loser in that to say that, you know, you fail a lot and it teaches persistence. He didn't agree with that, saying that his favorite game, Star Raiders, hasn't made him any more skilled in building models, driving cars, or even pasting up the copy for this issue. And he concludes by saying that, you know, why is he working for a games magazine if he doesn't like games? And he says that's not it at all. He says he's against the single-minded pursuit of any interest to the exclusion of everything else. And he admonishes parents saying, don't let your kids develop into computer literate illiterates. So that was an interesting editorial. Sounds like there were some behind-the-scenes discussions going on there at Analog uh, Headquarters. In the new product section by the Program Doctors... It's like a bunch of capsule reviews, you know, small little reviews of new things coming out. They mentioned that CBS has signed a marketing agreement with K-Byte, so all the new packaging for stuff like K-Razy Critters, K-Razy Antics, K-Star Patrol will be advertised and packaged by CBS. Continuing said, what would you do if you won 25000 Put a down payment on a house, buy a Porsche, pay your Master Charge bill? And note that Youngin's MasterCard used to be called Master Charge. And I still remember a joke about Master Charge from... One of my favorite 80s movies, Roxanne, with Steve Martin and Daryl Hannah. And I haven't seen that in years, and I'm hoping it holds up. It's really good in my head. But like a lot of 80s movies, there's a whole bunch of stuff that uh, sailed over my head as a kid that's probably, yeah, less than uh, appropriate now. So I'm crossing my fingers that that's not one of them. Anyway, they say, after winning the first Atari Star Award for my first alphabet, Fernando Herrera has done the only sensible thing and started his own software company. He's further capitalized on his achievement by naming his organization First Star Software, and we've been told by a very reliable source that Astro Chase is dynamite. This all-machine-language arcade game is planned for release in late October, and last episode we already saw the first advertisement for that. They mentioned a game Airstrike from an English software company. There's Track Attack from Brodebund, saying it boasts some of the finest graphics seen to date. It lists a few more games from upcoming from Brodebund, like Choplifter, David's Midnight Magic, Seafox, Starblazer, Serpentine, Dueling Digits, Labyrinth, and a 16K version of Apple Panic. Adventure International's got some stuff, like Preppy, Pirate Adventure. They say the cartridge business is picking up, so in the near future all these will be available with, on cartridge. So they say Crossfire, Wizard of War, Deluxe Invaders, Gorf, Embargo, Firebird, Risky Duck, which is a game I've never heard of, uh, Speedway Blast, and Pool 1.5 is going to be renamed Pool 400. 
They mentioned a game called Poker Tourney by Jerry White. And they mentioned a few joysticks, the Wico Command Control and the Game Tech Pro Stick. Then there's Suncom Slick Stick. And Suncom also has something called a, the Lefty Joystick Adapter, which I think is like a DB9 that has like male and female ends. You plug joystick into the one end and it transposes the wires to do what the article from um, from the last episode, I forget which issue, which magazine was in, but showed you how to rewire the, the internals of a CX40 joystick. I guess this does it for any joystick with the DB9 connector. And they wrap this article up by talking about SAM, the software automatic mouth. There's a little article on programmer aids by Tom Hudson where it lists like three quick reference cards and it has like a column listing a bunch of features and which of the program cards have that feature. I don't know any of these cards. One's from ACE, Advanced Computing Enterprises. One is called the Pro Card from Online Computing Centers, Oklahoma City. And the last is a wall chart from the Computer Center of Old Saybrook, Connecticut. And there's probably 25 different points of comparison, like, you know, binary number number conversion, basic error codes, uh, XIO command codes, open parameters, internal keyboard codes, graphics and RAM requirements, you know, a bunch of stuff. I've never seen any of these, and so I wonder if they've been archived anywhere at all. Uh, there's a silly data perfect worst ad ever again. We come to a program decolon check, which is a sort of a, a debugging aid, I guess. So you run it against program listings, and then it comes out with data. And then at the end of the um, each program listing, you know, further on in the magazine, they have to decheck data, and so it lists data statements. And so it's able to, so theoretically, you're able to locate errors more easily. There's the utility number three, the disk tool by Tony Messina. And it's a collection of three programs that allow you to really change anything on disk. You know, change sectors, change the VTOC, change the directory sectors. And it includes uh, a bunch of figures and some explanations of the different types of sectors available on disk. And at the end of the article, it has a bunch of experiments to try as kind of a, you know, a gentle introduction to messing with the low-level stuff on your disk. So two of the programs are assembly language, like a bunch of data statements where it creates uh, an autorun.sys file and then a machine language binary program. And the third program is probably 100, 150 lines of BASIC that call the machine language program in order to, to write stuff and read stuff from the disk. And at the end of the article here, it says the next issue, we will present part two of the disk tool. So I don't know if they're going to extend the program or just have like more examples or something, but I guess we'll find that out when analog next appears. There's a teeny little article. It says audio in your programs by Mark Rawson. It says how to put an audio cassette in the program recorder and run this three line BASIC program and it will play audio through the TV speaker. What I don't think it mentions is I think it's only off of one track. I can't remember if it's the left or right track, but it doesn't mention that here, and I don't recall exactly which one it is. There's an article, Budget Programs Review. It looks like home budgeting, which I'm going to skip here. But Wade at Inversitaski has covered TimeWorks, the money manager, in Episode 7, Season 4. But none of the other programs mentioned here, like Atari Personal Finance or Budget Master from Sunrise Software. Next, we have a basic game called Stuntman by Stephen Pogach. It's for it's a 16K cassette, 24K disc. It looks like it's a clone of Crazy Climber because it's got you know, windows that open and close, flower pots, birds, King Kong, and girders that fall. Looks like about 150 lines of basic. Next, we come to a review of a hardware review of The Voice Box by The Alien Group. The review is by Brian Moriarty, and The Voice Box is a speech synthesis thing. It plugs into the SIO port and includes software that's callable by basic. He says as a piece of hardware, VoiceBox is a delight, and while the basic demonstration programs aren't coded very efficiently, they do a fairly good job of showing off the system's features and possibilities, but it says the least attractive feature is the documentation. It's like disappointing, no printed listings of the programs, and no explanation of the machine language routines that drive the VoiceBox unit. And unfortunately, he doesn't compare it to SAM, which is what I'd be, that's, I mean, what I'm most familiar with, and so that'd be the comparison that I'd be able to make. 
He compares it to the Votrax, which is another hardware system, and the Street Electronics GP system. He says it isn't as versatile or well-documented as those, but it's much, much cheaper since it's 169 retail, where the other two are over 350 each and also require the 850 interface module, which he says is $220 extra. So it's a much cheaper solution than those, for sure. And I forgot to mention, in the sign of the times, he compares the size of this thing as uh, slightly larger than a pack of cigarettes. The next article is Mixing CTIA and GTIA Graphics by William W. Howe. And I didn't exactly get what they meant, because you can't, you know, you can't have both chips at once. But it seems to be what he's doing here is using a graphics 8, like, as the base mode, and then changing it to graphics 10 by changing the prior register. So basically, if you have the GTIA, you can run this little couple of little basic programs that turn a graphics 8 command, you know, where you have the graphics 8 on the top portion of the screen and four lines of graphics 0, turn it instead into graphics 10 on the top portion of the screen and four lines of graphics 0 text on the bottom. And there's a teeny little DLI, which is poked in with a basic program. I've seen a lot of articles like this recently. You know, the GTIA now is in common use, but there's still some people who have the old CTIA, so I guess this is kind of the time frame where this was all of interest. There's a review of uh, Datasoft Lisp. I didn't realize that Lisp was available for the Atari at all, and it's listed here as data-soft, but I think they're talking about the regular Datasoft that we're used to. Atari Mania has a, a Datasoft Lisp, and Datasoft's Interlisp is mentioned in some um, posts on the Atari Age forums. It's unclear if this is, it's unclear to me anyway, if this is the same inner Lisp that's referenced there or if it's an earlier program. Um, but at any rate, Lisp itself is kind of a, it's an odd language if you've never seen it before. It's sort of based on the idea of recursion and there's just like lots of parentheses. So a parenthesis starts an expression and it's processed until the close of parentheses. But if it reaches another open parenthesis, then that is processed first. And so it's all this nested stuff. I think it's technically called prefix notation where the operator is listed first and the operands are after that. Next is an article, Relieve Your Floating Point Blues, by Mike Suero. It's basically about how Atari Basic stores arrays and numbers as floating point values, and how each of those is at least six or seven bytes. So if you have this huge matrix that you're trying to set up, it's best to store that in a character array. And then it shows how to turn a single like linear string into an array of characters in the range of you know, 0 to 255 you know, as, a, as a single byte value. And in addition, shows how to even pack stuff further than that. So if you have small numbers that are you know less than, say, 16, you can pack them into a single byte. And so if you're the original 8x8 matrix of floating point values, he says, takes 1,152 bytes, you can now pack that stuff into 96 bytes using these techniques. We're about to the middle of the magazine now. It says, uh, there's a little thing in the corner of one of the pages that says, next I- issue, a super assembly language game. Don't miss it. And there's also an ad for Race in Space by their own analog software. And this was written by Charles Bashan, and I don't know that it ever gets published in analog or not. I can't remember. I couldn't find a reference that it does, but I guess we'll see here in the next several episodes. There's a basic program, Budget Worksheet 2 by Ali Khan. And this is, I guess, a disk version of the budget worksheet that was printed in last issue, which was designed for cassette users. Well, the author says once you get a disk drive, you don't ever go back to cassette. And so rewrote the program. And I guess it uses like random access on disk files to, and it's it's kind of unclear actually what this is useful for, but you enter like eight categories or up to eight categories in dollars and cents, and then you enter a bunch of different of these entries, and then it sort of adds them up and gives you tallies at the end. I don't know, it's it's not super clear. There's a teeny little 20-line basic program called No Rem by Jerry White, which reads a basic program that's been saved in list format, deletes all the rem statements, and writes it out. So I guess this is, you know, if you're running into space issues, 
Next article is Beginner's Basic by Thomas M. Christian. It's kind of a tutorial about how to use the colon separator between statements in basic. So it takes one long, well, long, it's, it's 15 lines of basic. It takes that long-ish program and combines some of them kind of in a, a kind of related lines onto a single line using the colon separator and says it increases the speed of the program by over 300%. It says the 15-line program was reduced to four lines, which makes it more readable. It's like, yeah, I'm not sure it's more readable, but reducing the amount of memory by 29% and the increase in speed definitely makes it worthwhile, though, for this sort of optimization in most basic programs. Next, we come to Graphic Violence. This is by Tom Hudson. It's a great utility program that allows game writers in BASIC to generate up to 20 simultaneous explosions in Graphics 7, something you could never do in BASIC just because BASIC does not have the, the speed necessary. The point of this article is to allow games to be written using the more simple BASIC and still have you know these some of these shiny special effects. There's four pages of text explaining how this works, and then a couple pages of the BASIC, which is really a bunch of data statements, along with some examples showing you how to set it up. And then two pages of the assembly language source code, so you can step through it and learn how the assembly works if you're so inclined. And we will be inclined. I'm going to go over it a little bit here. The text itself tells a little bit about it, how to set it up in BASIC. There's a USR command that you need to call the initialization routine, you know, before you ever use it in a program. And then after that, you just call another USR to start an explosion. And then once you trigger the explosion, the machine language takes care of everything else. Every vertical blank, it'll update the explosion a little bit. And when the explosion finally dissipates, it'll remove it from the list. So there's no housekeeping you've got to do from your basic program except to start it off. If you were to include this in your basic program, it lists a bunch of data statements. But what it does is it pulls the data out and sticks it in a string. Because a basic string can store any byte from 0 to 255, that becomes the source of the assembly language that is called. As I mentioned before, there's two parts to this. You've got to initialize the assembly language before you can then call it again. And so there's a user statement where you pass the address of the initialization function, the address of the main subroutine, a list of coordinates, and these coordinates then become the points that are plotted for the explosion. And I'll get to that in just a minute. And then two optional characteristics. If you want the color to cycle so it'll like flash the explosion a little bit, that can be that feature can be turned on and off. If it's off, then you just set the color, and then that's the explosion color for the whole bit. If you turn it on, then it cycles the color value, but not the luminance. So it gives it kind of a pulsating effect. The other option is sound. It includes a explosion sound that it can play. But again, that's optional. So if you don't want it, just turn that off. Once this initialization is complete, though, you don't have to worry about it again. And then just call the main program with the coordinates of your explosion, and the graphic violence subroutine takes care of the rest. And that's pretty much all you need to know from the basic side. There's some caveats. You can't use page 6, or at least a portion of page 6, because it needs some of that as storage area for its internal use. But other than that, it's really fire and forget in terms of your basic program or what your basic program sees. There are two basic demo programs. One just sets off an explosion in the middle of the screen so you can kind of see what it looks like. And another draws the end, you know, in large text that covers a good portion of the screen, and then explosions kind of pop up around it as an homage, I guess, to the end of Missile Command, if you've seen that arcade game. I'm going to look at the assembly language a little bit. The way you can get 20 explosions on the screen at any one time is that it's really not doing all that much during every vertical blank. The explosion is drawn one pixel at a time. So for at any vertical blank, you're only adding or subtracting one pixel from the screen. So even drawing 20 pixels if all 20 explosions are available is not taking that much time. The way it generates the explosion is it has XY coordinate pairs. And as it says in the article, each explosion graphic is made up of 89 separate pixels. The routine uses the specified center point of each explosion and adds X and Y offset values. Each of the 89 pixels are first turned on, one pixel at a time, resulting in a glowing appearance. 
After all 89 pixels are on, the routine turns off one pixel at a time, causing the explosion to dissipate. Then it shows the calculation since the vertical blank is every 60th of a second, and there are 89 pixels each time, you know, on and off. That means it takes about three seconds for the explosion to appear and then dissipate. By looking at the coordinate data, we can see that the explosion is 10 pixels wide because it offsets plus 5 in one direction and minus 4 in the other direction. So the center point being pixel 0, and it goes 5 positive and 4 negative, that results in 10. So it's a 10 by 10 circle that it's sort of filling in and, and dissipating. Looking at the code for the vertical blank, every time through it cycles the color if it, that was requested, and it does the explosion sound if that was requested. And then it checks to see if a new explosion was requested. There is sort of an unstated limitation here that you can only request one explosion per vertical blank. And so it's assuming that you can't generate multiple basic statements within the space of a single vertical blank. If you have two USR calls right in a row, I don't know that that's true or not. I don't know if, if basic is fast enough to execute one statement and then call another statement before the same or before the vertical blank has been triggered. I mean, this is not a huge limitation in basic, I don't think, but there's just be aware that that, that is in there and it's unstated. If a new explosion was requested, then it adds it to a table and then continues processing. If an explosion wasn't requested, then it just jumps right to the processing thing. And so what the processing does is checks a big list, see how many explosions are current and at which stage each explosion is in. And so it loops through that using a counter to figure out which pixel to draw or erase. The counter value is really the key to the whole thing. If it's less than 89, it knows it's drawing. And if it's greater than 89, it knows it's erasing. But once it gets to 178, which is 89 times 2, it knows it's done. And once it's done, it takes that counter out of the list, and that explosion's done, which frees up a slot for a new explosion. In order to plot an erase point, it actually has a dedicated uh, multiply by 40 routine. It gets the pixel x location, goes through this multiply by 40 using, you know, shifts and rolls to get to a multiply by 32, but then it adds it to the multiply value of 8 that it saves, and so that's how it gets the multiply by 40. So it could be done faster with a table, but that would have been at a cost of some space. In addition, had he used a table, he would not have been able to make this as stored as a basic string, because to do that, you need totally relocatable code. He manages that by only using branches. There's no subroutines or JSR calls at all. The only way to do a JSR and 6502 is to have an absolute address, and because this is, can be placed in any memory location, and you don't even know that when it's when you write the code where it's going to be, you cannot use a subroutine call at all, or at least within your own within your own code. You can jump to you know so an operating system location as a subroutine. He doesn't happen to do that, but you can do that in relocatable code. You just can't JSR anywhere in your own code. You can only use, you know, branching instructions, you know, BEQ, BNE, all those types of things. Anyway, this is a super useful utility. You can use it from assembly language, although you've got to do some setup yourself in assembly because he has actually offloaded some of that to basic. And he's done that because of the restrictions of him wanting it to be relocatable. To call it from assembly language, you'll need to set up the, uh, the coordinate, XY coordinate data structures somewhere as well as a tiny little 4-byte data array that, that he uses to figure out which pixel within a byte is illuminated. Yeah, to reiterate, a great utility function. If you're writing basic programs and need an explosion, you should definitely check it out. And if you're feeling adventuresome, you could even alter the explosion pattern by changing the coordinate pairs. You still have to keep them as 89 uh, pixels, though, unless you were to also alter the machine language code because that value of 89 is hard-coded in several places. Next is the article, Color Graphics in Mode 0 by Michael A. Ivins, and this is basically using mode zero characters, using artifacting to create different colors. It shows how to create character sets with the, you know, pixels in odd columns is one color, and pixels in even columns is another color, and then putting two pixels side by side shows up as white. 
And then as an example of this, he has a game, a color slot machine game that covers like seven full columns of uh, basic. So it's a pretty substantial program. Next is a little basic demo program called a banner banner program where it prints all 256 Tasky characters on your printer in a sort of large format. So this would use a ton of paper. So do this while your parents aren't looking. There's a little article on converting Microsoft Basic by Richard J. Callagher. And one of the biggest differences noted is numbers. So Microsoft Basic has different types, like integers, single precision, and double precision. And so that's a big gotcha. And the article is really just a page and a half. And so the bulk of that first page is talking about that. And then it mentions a few other things about how strings are different and stuff. Article concludes with saying that Microsoft Basic is really superior to Atari Basic. And it wouldn't be better had they included some of these features into Atari Basic. But obviously they were limited by the 8K in the basic cartridge. And then further admonishes Atari by saying that the manual for Atari Microsoft Basic didn't mention some of this stuff. Next, we have the Dungeons & Dragons Character Generator. This is by Bob Curtin. And I was playing Dungeons & Dragons at the same time I had my Atari computer. And I remember all the complicated stuff. You know, it was kind of fun designing, like, you know, pages with all the stats and stuff and, you know, changing the format around. I remember having fun with that. I remember having a typewriter, you know, and typing up my old character sheets. This program seems to only be useful for generating the character itself. It doesn't seem like there's a printout. It looks like it like rolls the stats automatically and has some modifiers in case you want to give the stats an extra bonus. Like, you know, like 3D6 was used for the basic stats. I think the author said he hard-coded a plus one and you can change it to plus two if you wanted to, you know, make your characters a little bit higher level. But yeah, it seems like you're still left to copy down all the stuff after this is created. So a nice enhancement to this program would have been a nice printout. It's quite a long program. It's almost eight full columns of basic. Nearing the end of the magazine here, we have an article, Missing Capabilities in Atari Basic, where it lists a bunch of stuff that could have been improved, you know, had Basic been greater than 8K. And a lot of it is like string manipulation, like all the all that stuff that was missing. Then we're into the land of like quarter page and half page ads. And buried in there is that Atari symbol demo that was mentioned in the table of contents. It doesn't have a screenshot, so I'm not sure what it's, you know, what it looks like. I was kind of visualizing, you know, this kind of one of these spinning Atari logos, but I don't think it's that. I think it's just a just a bunch of data statements with lines and draw to. So I think it probably fills the screen with a, a well, it's kind of like a wireframe or an outline drawing of the Fuji logo. And at the end, there's a indexed advertisers. The inside cover is a K-Razy shootout ad, and the back cover is an ad for Preppy. Let's take a look at Compute. This is November 1982, issue number 30, volume 4, number 11. Two bucks 50 on the cover price, one pound 85 in the UK, and 260 pages. It's Compute, the leading magazine of home educational and recreational computing. And above the title, it says, What to get your computer for Christmas. And then just below that, below the title, it says, A Buyer's Guide to Modems. The art is uh, kind of a bald Santa-looking guy with a pipe and you know smoke coming out of his pipe. And he's holding a computer, like tractor feed paper, saying, Dear Santa, please bring me a light pen, a voice synthesizer, an expansion board, nuts and bolts and switches. And he concludes, I have been good, your friend Chip the computer. And he's pouring over that. There's like a, a wreath in the background. And in the foreground then is a, a handset, you know, an old style telephone handset. And coming out of that, it's like a little... It's cursive writing. It says modems trying to act like it's, um, you know, sound, I guess, sound waves coming out of it. And then below that, it has a disc with an Atari logo in the center. But unclear why that Atari logo is there. It, it does have a few Atari things mentioned on the cover. It says Laser Gunner, an action game for Atari and Pet. A UXB, which is a fast-paced game for Vic and Atari. There are screen save utilities for Atari and Pet CBM. And then reviews of voice synthesizers for Apple and Atari. And then there's other stuff like two Vic games, a pet compiler, easy file input for Commodore computers, and Apple menu making programs user-friendly. And for the great nemesis, there is a shape generator for Commodore 64. The table of contents shows a bunch of Atari stuff. 
In the education and recreation section, there's a laser gunner, which is a basic game for the pet and Atari. UXB, we'll figure out what that is. And then an Atari for Christmas Part 1. So we'll check out those articles. There's a review of speech synthesizers for Atari and Apple. The Inside Atari column. And then in the journal section, which I guess is kind of smaller little programs and stuff, there's a computer-controlled telephone dialing. There's Atari screen save. Purge, which is, that's all it says. We'll figure out what that is. Copy Atari boot tapes to disk. A fill-in on XIO fill command. And the Atari Wedge adding commands to Atari Basic. Some other stuff we'll briefly cover is a uh, Christmas guide. It says what to buy your computer for Christmas. And then a buyer's guide to modems that we'll briefly look at. In the editor's notes section, it says the Commodore 64 charges out of the gate. It says our sources indicate the Commodore shipped 12,000 Commodore 64s in the first two weeks of full release. Now their primary problem, much like Atari with the 800, is building them fast enough to meet demand. And that's with a time when the VIC-20 is now base priced at $199 and reportedly shipping around 80,000 units a month. They conclude this little section saying, The marketplace is growing so fast, we're beginning to see evidence that some other magazines in our industry may start trying to provide some editorial coverage of VIC, TI, 400, and others. Which is kind of weird, because certainly the VIC and the TI don't have the coverage that the Atari does, but the Atari has been covered by many magazines for quite a long time. So I don't know why they threw the 400 in there. It's not like the 400 is fundamentally different from the 800. In ter- well, in terms of the software can run, of course, obviously the keyboard is, is quite different. And they include a little rumor section says, The Atari 600 and the Atari 1000. It says, next summer's CES may mark the debut of the two newest entries to the Atari product line. You may reasonably infer the 600 will fall between the 400 and 800 in pricing and features, and the 1000 is rumored to be Atari's planned entry into the small business market. Apparently, the Atari 1000 was an early prototype for what eventually ended up as the 1200XL, but it was much more expandable. It had a a large parallel port interface, or parallel bus, I guess, leading to some sort of expansion chassis. There's not a whole lot that's known about it. There's some stuff on the AntariMuseum.com that I'll link in the show notes. But there's a couple engineering drawings and things. It looks like what the 1200XL, I mean, the physical case, looks very similar to what ended up as the 1200XL. But it seems like the original plan was for a much more expandable system than what we ended up getting with the 1200XL. Continuing on, I see an ad for a game I haven't heard before, Jeepers Creepers. So I'm going to try a live play of this here. Says quality software presents Jeepers Creepers copyright 1982. Press start. So we will. Let's see. And we're dialing somebody. All right, and we got the main screen. Looks like kind of an Amadar clone. It's got these various rectangles kind of laid out, and your avatar sitting in the intersection of one of them. There are these kind of cookie monster figures in the center of some of the rectangles, and in the center of some other ones, there it looks like. Some letters, I assume it's J-U-M-P for jump, unless it's J-M-U-P, jump. They're in a two-by-two two grid. All right, let's see. I'm not moving anywhere. I think... Oh, there it goes. All right, I had to press the trigger to start. And then I'm... Yeah, circles a few things, and I got, oh, I got something trailing me. But it's not killing me. But now they just like... Whoops. Got these bugs. Ah, bug got me. And then I fell off the bottom of the screen. It's kind of... Oh, yeah, so fire button starts. It's kind of odd in that the the score is on the bottom of the screen, but it looks like the character set is... They meant to set the character set, but didn't, because it's got, like, slashes and dashes, where it should say, like, score and high score. 
can't tell... Yeah, I can't tell exactly why these... Some things are attacking the... Attacking insects and some are not. I think maybe circling the, the cookie monster is getting me some... Some helpers. Oop, apparently I cleared a level. So I don't know what to think about this game. It's like, you move very fast. It's hard to control. It's hard to get to an intersection that you really want to. A lot of times I would sail right past it. The enemy logic is much different than Amador, where Amador is very predictable. Every time it reaches an intersection, it has to take it. Whereas it seems like some of the little bugs track you vertically and some track you horizontally. At least from my, you know, limited experience here. So I don't know, not terrible, but I it, the controls are a little bit too twitchy, or, or at least I can't control it fast enough. So, yeah, I don't think it's the game I'm going to return to. So, hey, there we go. Live play. Very first time that's ever happened on the podcast. We'll see how it comes out after the edit. Don't know why I particularly chose that game to do this, but here we go, an experiment. Back to the magazine. What to buy your computer for this Christmas by Tom Haffill, features editor. So it's got four pages of stuff in a few categories. You can, it goes over, you can buy a disk drive, you can buy printers, buy memory. And in the printer section, they have two images, and one is labeled an 80-column dot matrix printer, and one is labeled an example of a 40-column dot matrix printer. But the labels are reversed, and under the 80-column dot matrix printer, they have the Atari 820 printer, and the 40-column printers is like an Epson MX80 printer. So, yeah, they got those images reversed. But that's one small article for those three things. And then they have this big article, A Buyer's Guide to Modems, and by Tom Halfhill again. So it explains a little bit about what modems are and then talks a little bit about some of the like large dial-up services like CompuServe and the source and then mentions that a bunch of local people have BBSs that you can call locally. It says a good way to find out about local stuff is the Online Computer Telephone Directory, a quarterly telecomputing newsletter published by Jim Cambron out of Kansas City Mo. It says in addition to telecomputing news, the newsletter also lists phone numbers of more than 450 free access bulletin board systems through North America and Europe. Then the rest of the main article continues and it breaks out into this really large grid, you know, features and price and stuff of probably 25 modems, you know, speeds, compatibility with certain computers, um, all that kind of stuff. So a very in-depth article if you're in the market for a modem right now. Next article is Laser Gunner Basic Animation by Gary R. LeCompte of Lewiston, Maine. It's an arcade action game, it says, for Pet CBM, but there's a Atari listing as well. So I guess the original was written in Pet and so they somebody doesn't say who converted it to the Atari. And there's a big note. It says, notes on the Atari version. For a game written in basic, it's reasonably fast and smooth. Smoothness comes from player missile graphics, but the speed comes from an unusual technique that lets you move player missile graphics at machine language speed. It says, that's right, no machine language is used in Laser Gunner, yet vertical motion is quite satisfactory. And so then it talks about using the string manipulation capability of basic as the move. And it goes into a little bit of detail about that. So how you have to align the strings to a 2K boundary for single resolution player missile graphics. And then just using the regular basic string manipulation commands gets you the vertical positioning of the players. It's about 120 lines of basic. It does include a screenshot. The pet version and the Atari version look substantially different, but the gameplay must be similar. It's like kind of like a sideways Space Invaders, sort of. I'm not sure how many enemies are on the screen at any one time, but you're you're little laser gunner is on the left side and I guess you can move it up and down and you shoot to the right and there's enemies that are shooting to the left through your little like laser defense screen and I guess once they get all the way through then the game is over but it's less a conversion it looks like than a port of the game so the basic listing of the pet version does not relate much at all to the listing of the Atari version 
Then we come to the game UXB by Roger Haggerty of Auburn, Alabama. And so UXB stands for Unexploded Bomb, which when I was in the military, it was UXO, Unexploded Ordnance. But I should have guessed that was something uh, related to that. It is a single screen game. It seems that you have to defuse bombs by moving your cursor over it. But it says you can also not touch mines because you're in a minefield and you have a certain amount of time to do all this. Apparently only 30 seconds and then I guess the game is over. And the faster you clear all the bombs, the better your score. But it seems like you must have to move the cursor and not touch the mines, but touch the bombs. So it's a black and white screenshot, so it's hard to tell what are mines and what are bombs. Um, But it's not a very long program. It's probably 50 lines of basic. Next, we come to an Atari for Christmas Part 1 by Brenda Balch of Redondo Beach, California. It's how to build the world's most intelligent Christmas card. Program involves several of Atari's special features to attract young people and involve them right away into the computers they're getting as a present. It says this two-part article concludes in December with an expanded version of the program. So it looks like a little program that you sort of set up ahead of time with all the names of all the people who are going to you know, be in your family as you give this present for Christmas. Then each one of them interacts with it, and it kind of says hi to everybody in the family, and then based on some of the data that you've entered, it says something that like the computer knows about them. So it's all based on stuff that you set up ahead of time, you know, as they unwrap this on the gift-giving day. It's got some explanations of some of the techniques used in the program, the restore statement, uh, the fill command, which is XIO18. And so it's not super huge, but it's, uh, what, 50 lines or so basic, and it points out to the places that you're supposed to change when you uh, are customizing this for your family. And so this, as it stands, is not a complete program, it's just a framework, and then in part two, I guess next month, they're going to fill in the subroutines for that you create for each person to do in, to individually customize graphic things. Skip a few Vic articles. There's an article called Statistician by Lewis F. Sander of Pittsburgh, but Pittsburgh with no state. So it could be Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, California, although that Pittsburgh is spelled without an H at the end. Be Pittsburgh, North Dakota, Pittsburgh Channel, Ontario, Canada. Could be on the USS Pittsburgh, SSN 720, a Los Angeles class nuclear submarine, or from Birmingham, Alabama, which is <laughs> nicknamed Pittsburgh of the South for some reason. I really want to know what the story is on that one. So basically, this statistician program is that you enter a series of numbers and it gives you like the mean and median and other useful statistical measurements, it says. It is about 70 lines of basic. Skip a few more things and then we get to a little small article, Getting the Most Out of USR by Charles Brannan, who's the editorial assistant. So it's the USR command in basic, talking about how parameters get passed and how you then pull them off the stack in um, your machine language subroutine. Then how to return to basic, because if you want, you can return a value in a register. And it'll then, so you can assign something like A equals USR, and then it says 1536, you know, calling page six, and then you get a value back in A. So it's a nice little summary about the USR command. There's a review of VisiCalc, which we'll skip, because Wade covered it back in season one, episode eight of his podcast, Inversitasky. And then we come to a review speech synthesizers for Atari and Apple. So we'll just focus on the Atari part. But this is what I've been wanting to see. Is a, this is a direct comparison between the Alien Group's voice box and Sam, the software automatic mouth from Don't Ask Software. So it goes in the differences, you know, Sam being software only and the voice box is the, you know, an external hardware device. This article is exactly what I was looking for. It's, it's direct comparisons between the two. And it's very detailed in this like two and a half page article. It says both voices are male, and it says not because the programmers were sexist, but because female voices are harder to synthesize due to their wider dynamic range. I don't know if that's true or not. Did a little searching around, and certainly the frequencies that men and women generate are typically different, women being having higher frequency, but it's not clear from the little bit of research I did that the dynamic range is that much different. I would hope the programmers weren't sexist, but I don't know where they're getting that data. 
But at any rate, there are two male voices. Each Sam and Voicebox have two male voices. It says Sam speaks with a definite accent, although nationality is hard to place. To some, it sounds somewhat Scandinavian, perhaps Swedish. Then again, it might be East European. At any rate, Sam speaks English as if it were a second language, it says. But going on, it says that's not intended as criticism. On the contrary, Sam talks very brightly, enunciating words and syllables with a sense for inflection and accent that is quite amusing. It does say that some syllables sound as thick or fuzzy and it calls out TH as a problem thing. It compares to the voice box, says it's distinctly different, speaks with a smoother voice than Sam without as many fuzzy syllables, but it says it has trouble with certain sounds. It says like a G resembles a D. And however, the voice box tends to speak in a monotone when converting plain English to speech, while Sam adds its own unique intonation, it says. If the voice box speaks with any accent at all, it is computerese, neutral or unemotional. It says the nuances are hard to describe, but the results are that the voice box tends to offer more human-like tones, while Sam tends toward more human-like speech patterns. Says so to put another way, if you were to have each synthesizer read a plain English sentence over the telephone to a person who was unaware a computer was speaking, the voice box would be quickly identified as a computer, while Sam might more easily pass as human, albeit one with a heavy foreign accent. But then they caveat all this with saying that they're talking about each product's ability to interpret plain English. And then it goes into now the phoneme section. And this is how you get both the systems to pronounce stuff more accurately. So instead of spelling out like synthesizers, the example they use, it gives the phonemes that you can use to make it sound more natural. Both systems use different sets of phonemes or like, you know, keywords to specify each phoneme. So you can't use, you know, one set for another. You know, you can't use the same phonemes and send them to the other system and have them pronounce it similarly. And I won't try to spell out the phonemes here, but, you know, synthesizer is, what is that, 11 letters? And then the phonemes used for Sam turns out to be 15 where the, the characters used for the phonemes in the voice box. It includes, also includes dashes, so I don't know if that's required for the voice box, but the, the SAM does not require dashes to separate the phonemes. I guess it knows what they are and will sort of break them out automatically. But yeah, it says with the voice box, use dashes to separate the phonemes, and then you can use different characters like the forward slash to raise the pitch and the backslash to lower the pitch on certain syllables. So including the dashes, the voice box needs 23 characters to say synthesizer. It says both programs allow you to interface with BASIC, although as we know from using SAM that it blanks the screen, and so it says you can't synchronize stuff to the screen as you can with the voice box. Although it says this synchronization is only available through machine language in the voice box because in BASIC it has the software driver that that freezes the screen. It doesn't blank it, it just freezes it, it says. Besides all the demos and utilities for the programming stuff, it includes some simple games, it says, for each one of them. The article doesn't come to a conclusion about which one is better. It seems they're fairly comparable. The big difference is the price. Sam, being software only, is much cheaper. It's $60, where the voice box is $169. After skipping some stuff, we come to the monthly column The World Inside the Computer by Fred Dignazio. It's titled, Hey Computer, Wanna Play? And so this is a continuation of that Computer Friend program that he's been developing over these last several issues. So it's in basic, and what it turns out, this is like, comes like a driver program to call other programs. So if you want to have your computer friend play a game, you can either code it into this program in a certain position in the basic line numbers, like line number 15,000 and above, he's left open so you can code it in there. Or he says you can have a sort of a menu program that knows the names of certain games and then it can call them. And he says you can return control to the computer friend after that program has been completed. Looks like it's maybe 200 lines of basic, and it appears like this might be the end of the series. It doesn't say that there's going to be another article in this one for uh, next issue. 
Next is the article Turtle Pilot by Alan W. Poole from Loomis, California, and it's sort of the continuation of that pilot language that they uh, introduced over the previous couple of issues. Then we come to an article, Computer Controlled Telephone Dialing, by Mark Savaris of Livermore, California. It says, use your Atari's sound generation capabilities to automatically dial a touch-tone telephone. It's all done with software. And the phone system in the U.S. works such that when you pick up the receiver, this, of course, this is way back, you know, when you had phone lines with actual dial tones and stuff. The telephone company is listening for frequencies, and so he includes a chart of the frequencies that are required to dial particular numbers, and the way it works is there's a little matrix that each number has two frequencies that are generated simultaneously, and once the phone company registers those frequencies, it knows that a particular number has been pressed. And he includes the chart here, and for instance, to dial at 1, the frequencies 1209 hertz and 697 hertz would be generated. With the dial at 2, it's 1336 hertz plus... 697 hertz. Interestingly, which I didn't know, it says there's a fourth column that, that let the letters A, B, C, and D have also been defined. The Atari can, of course, generate multiple tones simultaneously. However, he notes that the with a normal you know, four-voice system, the frequencies aren't able to be specified precisely enough. So he shows how to do the combine two voices into one, and you get much higher resolution. He shows the calculation about how to generate all these frequencies and, you know, what values need to be specified on the Atari, and then includes a little 70-line basic program that allows you to dial from your computer. Just hold your speaker up to the, or just hold your telephone up to the speaker of the TV, and you can dial whoever you want. We'll totally skip over the article, The Shape Generator for the Commodore 64, because I don't want to know how easy it is to generate your 24 by 21 sprites that you can move anywhere with a poke statement, because that's boring and too easy. We like to have to move our sprites vertically using machine language code because we can make our sprites as tall as we want. So there. There's a little article, Atari Screen Save by Richard S. Waller of Seven Hills, Ohio. And it says this will save any standard Atari basic screen display very fast. And it says it can save any like graphics mode, but I don't see how it does that. I think you may have to specify the graphics mode in the program. And then it does seem to appear that it knows you know where the memory is. It doesn't seem like it's flexible enough to handle a custom display list, though, like where it's got multiple load memory scan instructions. That's a small little, like, 60-line basic program, and, yeah, could be useful if you have a standard graphic screen. And we come to the Inside Atari by Bill Wilkinson of Optimized System Software Cupertino, California. There's a quick way to verify cassettes, a survey of languages available for the Atari, and a fix for a bug in Atari's RS-232 handlers. So he says one of the major flaws of the Atari computers has always been the lack of cassette verify capability, which I don't know that's a major flaw. It seems to me he's, ter- he's talking about saving uh, basic statements or basic programs to cassette. And he says don't use csave, instead use list c colon, so which saves the text version to the tape. And then saying by using an enter c colon after you rewind the tape, it'll merge the program from tape into the existing basic program. And if there's any errors, it'll show up as a different line number. But it's not like there's an automatic compare method, so I don't know what this is really useful for. And the next section on languages talks about just really just a big list of all the various languages that are available at the time. There's some simple assemblers, even a cassette-based assembler from Quality Software, interestingly, which is the same company that puts out the Jeepers Creepers that I looked at earlier. So the assembler editor cartridge, the EASMD from OSS, the edit assemble debug cartridge and datasem 65 from datasoft are the minimal assemblers i guess then the macro assemblers there's mae the macro assembler editor from eastern house the macro assembler lcomp or from lcomp i guess the atari macro assembler and mac 65 from oss and that's the one i used i wish i had had that in cartridge but of course i had it pirated but i think on cartridge it included like a debugger or, or something you get access to 
a monitor. I ended up getting the Omnimon, which was better. You know, you could just hop into that whenever you wanted to. And that's how I was sort of hacking games back then. For interpreters, it lists Atari Basic, Basic A, it says Basic A Sharp, but I don't think that's what it is. Basic A Plus from OSS. Lisp from Datasoft, Pilot from Atari, Tiny C from OSS, and Microsoft Basic. It lists the category pseudo-compilers, and this is like 4th and Pascal. It says there's four different 4th dialects, QS 4th, Atari 4th from APX, PNS 4th from Pink Noise Studios, and Val 4th from Valpar. And the only Pascal it lists is the one from APX, the Atari version. But then it says the under compilers, it also lists Pascal from APX. So I guess you can use it as an interpreted or compiled version. I didn't know that. And then C65 from OSS. I wasn't aware of C until the 16-bit era, and so my journey on the 8-bits was really basic and assembly, and I had always wanted to get into action, but it was still, I didn't really have a basis in procedural languages until, so right at the end of my 8-bit time, and then I got into the 16-bit stuff and went to C. There is a modern cross-compiler for action, so you can develop on your, like, normal desktop machine and then compile it to Atari output, and that's called Effectus, and so I'll include a link to that in the show notes. Finally, he finishes up the column saying there's this bug in the 850 interface drivers that's supplied by Atari. It says they incorrectly set the low mem. So they did the order incorrect. They set the low mem to protect itself in low memory, then called DOS, which then changes the low mem to just only protect DOS. And then so you lose the 850 interface after a system reset. So he said he's working on a patch and hopes it'll be ready next month. The next article is Machine Language Serial Communications. It's a monthly column by Jim Butterfield, and this is talking about how to use machine language to talk to stuff coming in over a serial port, although it doesn't say what computer it's for. It references a few, like, high memory locations, and it's not Atari stuff, because E8F or E84F is not an Atari like, input-output handler at all, so it must be the pet or something. We're getting near the end here, only, like, three more Atari things. One is Copy Atari Boot Tapes to Disk. This is by C. Scott Davis of Broomfield, Colorado, and this is for the person who started their system with a cassette drive and then moved to a disc. So you got this all this library of games, probably, from cassettes, and you want to copy them to disc. And so what this program does is reads the boot tape, does the conversions necessary, and writes it out as an executable, what we call an XEX today, back to disc. So it's sort of binary stuff only, and obviously not copy protected, although I'd don't know how tapes get copy protected, but I don't think it'll work on multi-load. Doesn't specify anything where, uh, you know, if the tape program has a boot portion and then reads more stuff from the tape. So I think you're, it's only single-load boot tapes that'll work. Next is the Atari Wedge Adding Commands to Atari Basic by Charles Brannan, the editorial assistant. It says, you can customize your Atari Basic by adding new commands to the language itself. To demonstrate how to do it, the program below adds five DOS commands to Basic, including a directory command. So the basic language itself isn't extensible necessarily or directly as other, like uh, AppleSoft, I think, has like ampersand commands. So we don't have that. But what he does here is he extends the E colon driver, so the editor device. He calls it this wedge. And so it's this essentially replacing the system's E driver with this little routine that does some stuff. And if it doesn't recognize the command, it sends it back to the regular uh, OS driver. And describing what it does, he says, we just catch the carriage return code and leisurely examine the input buffer located at hex 580. We compare it against a table of commands, and if we find a match, execute that. If not, we just return the line to the CIO handler and let basic parse it. The rest of the article is how the commands themselves are structured so that this wedge can parse it. We have a command, then space, and then some parameters separated by commas. In his sample, the commands he provides are dir, which is the directory lock, unlock, scratch, which is what the name uses for delete and rename. Program is persistent, surviving a system reset, and it provides one command kill to remove it. 
Well, apparently it doesn't remove it from memory. It just replaces the e colon handler with the uh, standard operating system version. There's a basic loader program, which is you know a bunch of data statements. So over 100 data statements you've got to type in, and not in hex, in decimal. It does include the assembly language listing, which is about six full columns of assembly language in 40-column mode, which is a bit unfortunate because some of the comments extend, like, wrap around, and so it's, it's a little bit hard to follow some of the comments. A listing li- like this would probably would have been better served to do what they did in analog instead of, like, indenting eight characters like it does here. Like, a label in the assembly language on an analog listing would be at the far left, and then a line without a label is just one space in, so there's much more space to put a comment. Bonus points for including the assembly language listing, though, and it looks like that would have been a very useful program. The final Atari article is a fill-in on the XIO fill command by Gretchen Shabtok of Alexandria, Virginia. It says this tutorial article presents several interesting extensions for the XIO fill program on page 54 of the Atari Basic Reference Manual. So the XIO fill command is one that doesn't have a direct basic statement for, but it's, it's callable via this XIO. And this article is a couple of demo programs showing the what happens when the fill command is used in various situations. I remember knowing about this command, but I, I remember not being not finding much use for it. And there was in future magazine articles, there were things like these diamond fills and other fill algorithms that I think work better or faster. So I don't think the XIO fill is particularly fast. And that's it for Atari articles. There's a few things in the new product section. Spinnaker Software has the story machine. They talk about the faster formatting for an Atari 810 disk drive using that replacement ROM chip. And MMG Microsoftware has six programs that it mentions, two games, Asteroid Miner and Chomper, and then some basic utilities. And there's the Mosaic 64K RAM select board for the Atari 400, which gives you a full 48K and then an additional four banks of 4K ROMs or 4K RAM that is, I guess, mapped to the C1000 hex page, which is unused in the original OS. You can bank switch those. Well, the new product section just keeps continuing. There's a Space Ace for Atari from London Software. It says a new arcade quality action game. I mentioned Crazy Critters from K-Byte Software. And then Atari's new research laboratory in New York City. <laughs> it says, it's headed by Stephen T. Mayer, VP of Research and Product Development. The new lab will be responsible for development of advanced products for Atari, a leading manufacturer of coin-operated home video games and home computers. It's like they took this right from a press release, because I think you probably know that if you're reading this magazine. And mercifully, that comes to an end, and we have inside front cover as an advertisement for um, some printers. And finally, maybe, we've seen the last of William Shatner, because now we have a back page advertisement for the Commodore 64. This ad just has a picture of the C64 and a monitor showing some bar graph thing, and it's a lot of text. On the top it says, when we announced the Commodore 64 for $5.95, our competitors said we couldn't do it. That's because they couldn't do it. And it says the reason is that, unlike our competitors, we make our own IC chips plus all the parts of the computers they go into. And I notice they don't mention quality, because I think a lot of the Commodores were, like, quality optional. Is that too harsh to say? Mm. I don't know. I've heard that there was a lot of returns on Commodore stuff, and then instead of really fixing the quality issues, they just swapped out the computer in an exchange. Anyway, don't know if that's true or not, but that's always the rumor I heard in Atari circles. Let's move on to creative computing. This is the November 1982 issue, volume 8, number 11. $2.95 on the cover price. There are 332 pages in this issue. Creative Computing, the number one magazine of computer applications and software. It's normal title and subtitle in yellow font. The background of the cover page is blue. It's got a big rainbow starting from the top left corner going down to the bottom through this computer. To the, on the very bottom is a keyboard attached by a sort of a curly cable to a monitor. And it says the feature review, the Deck Rainbow 100. And then focus on computer languages, columns for Apple, Atari, IBM, PET, slash VIC, TRS-80, graphics, logo, and books. 
and then in-depth evaluations of TK Solver, which we talked about last issue's Byte magazine, and other stuff, math, math and magic, four slideshow systems, 14 languages packages for the TRS-80 Coco, Micro Dynamo MMS 4th, Flight Simulator OKDOS, OK so that's Atari, ZBasic 2.2, and JRT Pascal. So I think the only stuff on the cover for the Atari are just the column and the um, KDOS. The table of contents, the Outpost Atari is back, but there's nothing additional that calls out the Atari itself. I don't think I'm going to be spending a lot of time on this issue here because there's not a whole lot of stuff that's of interest of either current me or back-in-the-day me. So we'll see how this one goes. The article on the Deck Rainbow is quite long. It's almost Byte-esque as well in its number of ads in between. So it's 20 pages, and you know half of those are ads. The Deck Rainbow is a sort of business computer. It has a dual Z80 and 8080 processor combo. And it goes into quite a lot of detail about the system and graphics, word processing capabilities, uh, programming capabilities, and sort of business acumen. It's compared directly to the Apple III and the IBM PC. The systems for each of those, the deck system itself is $4,200, where the Apple III says is $4,600 and the IBM PC is $3,700. So it's quite a spendy system. If you were invested in CPM, it was probably a good transition to make from the 8-bit to the 16-bit era but it's not a system I've either seen or really had much interest in. So skipping on to the next thing, which is TK Solver. It's a review by David H. All. I mentioned it in the Byte magazine I reviewed last um, episode. And this is a, a very detailed article about using TK Solver and what its capabilities are. A number of things I didn't realize about this program when I talked about it last time is it was made by the same company that did VisiCalc. The article mentions Dan Bricklin and Bob Frankston, the creators of VisiCalc, and it sort of implies they had stuff to do with this program, but it doesn't actually explicitly say it was written by them. So I don't know if that's the case or if it's just their company was involved. And the other thing I learned about is that's still an actively developed program today. The rights were sold several times and now is um, currently being produced for Windows machines. We're skipping ahead quite a bit. Uh, I did run across an ad for uh, Astro Chase by First Star Software, Fernando Herrera's game program. But most of the articles I've encountered have been for like Apple business programs and stuff, so that's an easy skip. There is the amusingly named Apple Flasher program, which is an electronic slideshow, not the naked apples. And it's really not till we're 100 pages in that we talk about some other system, and it's sort of TRS-80, so we'll keep skipping. There is a section here on Pascal. There's a Pascal compiler for um, CPM systems and then an article about programming in Pascal. And there's quite a big group of stuff for the color computer. But it's not until we get to page 148 that we have an Atari thing. It's an alternative to Atari DOS, or this is the review of KDOS. And this is by Sheldon Lehman, who we mostly know from his writing in SoftSide. There's a call-out in the article, If you have memory to spare, KDOS offers many attractive features. Another call-out is, It's a convenient tool for the user who is serious about programming. So it's a command-line DOS. It says it's, uh, one of the drawbacks is it uses much more memory than regular DOS because the entire DOS is resident, whereas, you know, DOS and dupe, the memory portion, the dupe.sys, was only loaded when you needed it. It's quite an in-depth review of KDOS. It talks about a whole bunch of different features like um, stopping disk I.O. by hitting the break key, or if you're debugging your program and it hits a machine language program and it hits a break instruction, it pops it into DOS instead of locking up the machine. It also includes some features of a machine language monitor allowing you to jump to other machine language locations and continue executing or dump memory in hex or ASCII formats. He wraps up saying he's found KDOS especially helpful developing software that combines BASIC with machine language, but it's not that much interest perhaps to a casual programmer because the features are really targeted towards a more advanced developer. We come to reviews, or a group of reviews called Casino Games for the Apple, and unfortunately none seem to have Atari versions. 
There's a review for a flight simulator on the um, Coco. And then we come to a review of uh, Hockey by Gamma Software. Reviews by Norman Schreiber and Weitold Urbanowitz. It's a 16K game and can be played by two, three, or four people, but not one. It appears not to use scrolling, and apparently there are modes where you can play against each other or all be on the same team against the computer. Said it was a bit flickery, and sometimes it was hard to figure out which like player was which, but I guess the general sense was that they liked the game, and um, they said it achieved its goal. There's an article, The Programmer's Guide to Programmer's Guides by George Blank. And so for they list a couple languages and then some systems and kind of what are some good books and, and things to read. Although the caveat is, the most valuable reference guide I have is my own notebook. So yeah, taking notes is a good thing. For the Atari, he mentions Atari Basic Learning by Using by Thomas Rowley, as well as Deiray Atari, and at the end of the article has a listing of all the books referenced and where to get them. Next we come to an article, Tron the Motion Pixel Show by Mike Coffey. First paragraph says, I have seen the future of American film. It is computer-generated and wondrously vibrant. Tron takes the viewer inside the incredible world of computer graphics and then proceeds to have kind of pretty much a blow-by-blow of the entire plot of the movie before concluding with five or six paragraphs. He says, though not a great example of film literature, Tron succeeds mightily as a computer graphics demo. He kind of compares the story to a Saturday matinee material and says the dialogue is peppered with computer in-jokes. The summary really being that it's, you know, the story is fine, whatever, but really see it if you want to know what the future direction of computers are going to be. And he's definitely not wrong about that. Computer graphics has certainly changed the film industry and, you know, created a whole new genre of kids' films. You know, pretty much all kids' films now are computer animated, not traditionally animated. Next, we come to their section on languages. They have something on Pilot and Logo. And then they have an article, The Countess in the Computer Language is a three-part series on the Ada programming language, named after Ada Lovelace, of course. Ada was designed for the U.S. Department of Defense. And I encountered it only briefly when I was in the military. I never had to write in Ada. I, I saw some programs written in Ada, and it was much more sort of structured. I've heard it described as uh, programming by contract. It was much more sort of verbose than C. By the time I was in the military, we were using, they called it COTS, commercial off the shelf. So we were writing in C and Python and um, other things. At the time this article was written, you know, so 82, Ada was a big deal, and people really thought that it was going to be like the, the big thing. That There's a couple quotes that people thought it was going to replace most other structured languages. But it took a long time to implement, and apparently there, well, you know, being the government, it's, yeah, there's um, challenges to working with the government. There's something called the jargon file, which if you haven't seen it or heard about it, you should go check it out. But it's just a list of all these, you know, definitions of terms. And the jargon file describes ADA as precisely what one might expect given that kind of endorsement by fiat. Designed by committee, difficult to use, and overall a disastrous multi-billion dollar boondoggle. Ada Lovelace would almost certainly blanch at the use her name has been laterally put to. The kindest thing that has been said about it is that there's probably a good small language screaming to get out from inside its vast elephantine bulk. Well, prepare to be disappointed, but we're not going to cover Ada in this podcast. After that article, there's a Pascal article, and then there's a Towers of Hanoi. says, A Lesson in Recursive Basic by Kimball M. Rudine. And this problem is an example of the ease at which you can do a problem, you know, the, the right problem using recursion. It can be less than 10 statements, but if you try to do this without recursion, it's a big mess. So it includes an example in BASIC, although it doesn't say which BASIC it's using, but it's simple enough that it can probably be ported to the Atari if you would like. There's an article, Programming Data Structures in BASIC, Part 3 by Edward Mitchell. Last month was talking about data structures in sort of abstract terms, lists, stacks, queues, and trees, and this month is showing you how to do some of that stuff in BASIC. So a bunch of example programs and lots of listings. It's all written in Microsoft BASIC, so it would probably take some effort to convert to Atari BASIC. 
There's an article, Making Every Vote Count, a program to tally the single transferable vote by Jim Parr. And this idea of a single transferable vote seems to be what's now called ranked choice voting, which is a cool system. Several states here in the U.S. have ranked choice voting. I think Maine does. Some city elections here in California, I think San Francisco uses ranked choice voting. It's like instant runoffs. So until one candidate gets a clear majority, like more than 50%, at each step, the lowest ranking candidate is removed. And then because you've ranked all the candidates in preference, if you voted for that candidate that was removed, this your second place vote then gets counted. And so that adds up with the new totals minus the candidate who's just been discarded. So this is a basic program to do all this stuff. And it's, it's about an eight-page article spread over like 14 pages. It has a bunch of tables and charts and stuff explaining this whole system, how to design a ballot, and then a basic program of probably 150 lines or so to, to do all the tallying. And then it has a bunch of references about voting in general and this system in particular. There's a few articles on some basics of other systems. And then we get to the graph paper by David Lubar, which is that continuing series of articles on Apple graphics. And this one is about the ROM routines available that you can call from assembly language or BASIC. The new product section mentions only one thing on the Atari, the Bit3 uh, FullView 80 card. The Outpost Atari section is back. It's by John Anderson. He talks about having his machine for three years now, and that he claims there are 300,000 Atari users at this point. I don't know where he comes out with that number, he doesn't say, but he does say that he's enjoyed his time with the computer so far. Talks a little bit about bulletin boards. He says he regularly dials into five bulletin boards and includes a list of about 20 all in the U.S. and lists the phone numbers and whether they're always on or limited access. He says reading on the Mace bulletin board, which is out of Detroit, Michigan, saying that John Harris was noted had his source code for Frogger stolen during a charity benefit. And I'm pretty sure I talked about that back in episode five when I talked about his uh, Jawbreaker game. He mentions he's yet to see a definitive list of memory locations for the Atari in any manual, periodical, or book. We are compiling a list currently, and it will appear soon in the pages of Creative Computing. And he lists a couple of memory locations as an example of kind of the stuff they're going to apparently publish soon. And finally, finishing up the Outpost Atari, there are two game reviews, one of Canyon Climber and the other of Clowns and Balloons, both from Datasoft. And as typical for Creative Computing reviews, he likes them both. The theme really being is if the program is more bad than good, it doesn't appear in creative computing. Most of the rest of the magazine is unremarkable, apart from the book reviews section. There's a book called Video Invaders by Steve Bloom, published in 1982 by Arco Publishing. It seems like it might be interesting to track down. It's like a history of the video game industry up to that point. It says from Pong to the present day talks about Atari as the IBM of the game world and the frankest and most complete profile you're likely to see concerning the corporation. The author toured Atari and reports on his findings in detail. And it turns out the electronic copy is available at the Internet Archive, so I include a link to that in the show notes. And I skimmed it, and there's a lot of good information on Atari, and there's a bunch of interviews with Atari people, as well as other luminaries in the industry like Eugene Jarvis, Tim Skelly, Dave Nunning, Ed Rotberg, and a very interesting one with Donna Taylor and Ed Lodge, the team that developed Centipede. The intro to that article is interesting. It says Lodge's major professional distinction is that he programmed asteroids. Taylor's is simply that she's a woman, the only one in the department, and one of two or three in the whole industry. The little interview focuses on Centipede, how they teamed up to do it. it. says he directed it, she programmed it. The author Steve Bloom quotes her as saying, As a programmer, my main focus is graphics. I want games to look good. For instance, I really like pastels, which is why there's so many pinks and greens and violets in Centipede. I really wanted it to look different, to be visually arresting. And Quiz Lodge is saying, Centipede was definitely aimed at a woman's market. I'm not sure without Donna's viewpoint it would ever have made it there. And then Taylor again, being the only female programmer ensures one thing that I'll be listened to. 
It's funny working in a department with only men. I'm like the only sister with a thousand brothers. Some days I hate it. I end up going home really annoyed. I guess I think they're listening, but no one really is. But I'm lucky to be at Atari. It's fun being the queen of taste. It's interesting. It's emphasis mine. I'm not sure how to read that sentence. It's like, I guess I think they're listening. Or I guess I think they're listening. I guess I think they're listening. Definitely things you can't get from reading a transcript. Anyway, there's some bonus coverage there of a book. First time I've done that in the podcast. Let's close out the magazines with Mike's letter to the editor. This unhinged one is from Creative Computing. After reading Philip Good's review of the Atari word processors in the June issue of Creative Computing, I'm sure that many Atari owners started to gnash and wail. Take heart, folks. It's not as bad as Mr. Good implies. Now, I don't know about the letter, perfect, or text wizard word processors, but I do know about Atari's because I bought one a day ago in spite of his review. In his review, he makes several mistakes. You can use a Centronic 739 or the new Smith Corona TP1, which I'm sure Smith Corona considers to be letter-quality printer. He also implies that the tutorials are hopeless. Gosh, how did I learn to use it in about two hours from those hopeless tutorials? Also, he says there is no backup. Maybe they just made a mistake when one was included in my package. Now, I'm no expert. I haven't reviewed 70 zillion word processors as Mr. Good has, but it appears to me that your like of one word processor over another is akin to taste in clothes or interior decoration. There is certainly no accounting for taste. My advice to those poor Atari owners who want word processing would be as follows. Get it. If you're like me and love to write or must write in your job and can't type well or type superbly, get it. If you just started using computers, the documentation, taped lessons, and exercises with the Atari software will help immensely. I warn you that I'm from Oklahoma, don't drive a Ferrari, and can only afford beer most of the time. My house is modest, and so is my expertise, and I can't afford $15,000 for a top-of-the-line word processor. But I can say positively that the Atari word processor, even with its limitations, is a joy to use. James Forrest Derner, Jr. Response It has always been the policy of creative computing to encourage reviewers to make judgments and express opinions about the products they evaluate. We also encourage them to put their opinions in context so readers will know from what point of view the judgments are made. Indeed, taste in word processors varies widely among computer users, and Mr. Good apparently has quite different tastes from some of our other readers. Imagine his response if he could have afforded a Ferrari or beer all the time. That reading was by Mike Whalen, producer of the Retro Reads podcast and staff member at Juice GS. And we're wrapping up here with this episode. A couple firsts here. The big one being we haven't talked about all the magazines of November 1982. So next episode, we'll be covering the remaining magazines of November 1982, which are Byte, Computers and Video Games, Computer Gaming World, Micro, the 6502-6809 Journal, Softline, and Softside. And then the episode after that, we'll get to the 5200 comparison and the Kicks versions. I do have a little bit of feedback to report. I mentioned in the last episode there was a bubble sort program, and what I failed to mention was that there's a really new implementation of this of sorting visualization algorithm that's this time on the Atari 8-bits themselves. I mentioned one a while ago on the podcast. I was on YouTube. Well, this one, so it's called SortViz. It has a bunch of different algorithms that display visually as well as providing audio feedback of what it's doing. I'll include a link to the Atari Age forum post where you can download the program by Atari Age user Amarok. 
It's written in Mad Pascal, and several users have provided some uh, sort routines that were included in the code. So it's still an ongoing thread as I write this now, and it's well worth checking out. The other bit of feedback I got was from Bill Kendrick, who tested out some stuff I mentioned in the last episode. He wrote a little basic program using the Atari 8-bit bot on Twitter to demonstrate using plot and set color to draw characters on the graphic zero screen. So it was something I didn't get to work on my last episode, and I, I got it to work on, I think, Graphics 2 or something. But he shows how it's done in Graphics 0, so I'll include a link to his post on the Atari 8-bit bot on Twitter. So I guess that's it for this episode. This is unusual. At this point, I'm still having normally like seven or eight more magazines to go, and I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. So we'll see how this experiment goes, but so far the editing task does look quite less daunting, so maybe I'll continue it. Thanks as always to Steph Animal for the theme song Dragon Swirl off the album Top Gear as the theme for the podcast. I'll see you next time for the remaining magazines of November 1982. And if you have any feedback for me, you can at me on Twitter, I'm Atari8BitGames, or you can send me an email at feedback at playermissile.com. So until next time, don't use the aid of programming language to bid on your next government contract. (laughs) 